This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Fourth little turkey said Thanksgiving's near. We are going to talk turkeys, everybody. That's amazing, by the way. (laughs) That he found that song. Our producer's the best. Paul Brennan is amazing. And I'm going to steal our reporter's line because it's a good one. Small birds are having a big moment. We are talking turkeys. It's a timely story with Thanksgiving just next week. Leslie Patton is consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. She's joining us from our bureau in Chicago. Tiny turkeys. Uh, Oh, millennials. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they do it differently. Leslie, what are we talking about? Yeah, there are a couple different factors or trends at play here. One is smaller families, smaller households. Um, and then there's the whole thing about growing guilt over wasteful leftovers and throwing food away. Wait, that's People what Thanksgiving – can that. I just say that's what Thanksgiving is about? My favorite thing is that Friday morning after breakfast is turkey, it's pecan pie, it's perfect. Well, there's this whole there's this whole trend toward minimalism and buying just what you need, and I, I think the younger generation, especially, really tries not to be wasteful. I mean, everyone does. I think that's a trend across everyone these days. But but we're seeing it maybe driven a little more by by some of the younger generations. All right, so Leslie, let's put some numbers around this. What's a big turkey? What's a tiny turkey in in uh, in this scenario? I would say a big one is maybe 25 pounds or more. I mean, Butterball sells ones that are bigger than 30 pounds. So you can get some pretty big turkeys uh, in a small one, maybe 6 to 10 pounds. That's a tiny turkey. It's a tiny Yeah, turkey. it's small. It's, it's almost chicken size. I love that you're right. We birds are in greater demand, uh, but they're not capons, right? This is a different beast. Really. <laughs> or the same beast, just smaller. <laughs> no, it's different. Um, what's interesting is, tell us about the companies. I mean, Butterball's doing mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's not like we're just having some fun here and millennials, you know, it's just a, a bit of a niche. Or is it a, a niche? Or are you seeing the big players, the big turkey providers, actually kind of all in on it? I think it's kind of the beginning of the trend, right? So so Butterball has their little Butterball variety, uh, a frozen and a fresh one, and it's as small as six pounds, so that's pretty small. Uh, another turkey company, Bell & Evans, is working with a breeder to make a, a smaller variety of turkeys not available um, just at Thanksgiving, but year-round. I should point out, Leslie, and I'm sorry you can't see this, that, uh, that, and this is where radio really fails to capture uh, the energy of Carol Masser drawing a stick turkey and waving it around. Not the a happy studio. one, though. He's a little nervous. Not a happy one. And he looks, that, that one looks a little fat. I'm not an I artist. I know. I studied economics. Uh, so, art. what does this tell us, Leslie, about food trends beyond the turkey? I mean, is this a whole different kind of Thanksgiving, or is this just limited to the turkey here? Well, I think I think there's that trend of, like I had mentioned before, people just don't want to be wasteful, yeah. and people don't want to throw stuff away, so they're going to maybe buy a little less, maybe cook just what they think they're going to need, maybe with a little bit of leftovers, because everyone does love that. But maybe you're not going to be eating turkey then for, for weeks and weeks. Maybe you eat it for a few days instead. 
Leslie Patton, our consumer reporter on the Turkey Beat. A very prescient, timely story as we, Carol, as you say, uh, head toward Thanksgiving. Uh, just a week away, a week from today, well, we'll be eating turkey. I also do think, I know, and I do love it. Um, I do think about, you know, as she puts out in her story, families are kind of more spread out than they used to be. So, you know, you don't need as much. No sale. It is no sale. All of you cats can too. Well, it's been a rough ride for JCPenney, to say the least. Uh, Emma Parmar is a consumer and retail reporter, but actually so many more uh, things because she is, if I could talk a little inside baseball, she's an investing reporter. She's doing a stint covering retail. So we love talking to her because she really takes a holistic view of the market from both an investor uh, and a consumer perspective. So, Hema... Don't fail us now. I'm just saying with that introduction, don't fail us. What is going on at Penny's? So much is going on at Penny's. Um, The company posted earnings this morning, and it was a big disappointment for investors. Uh, Analysts were expecting same-store sales, which is a very closely watched measure, um, to be be down 0.8%. It actually came down 5.4%. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. It's... it's, um, Um, a, a pretty stark disappointment for analysts and for investors. And it sent shares down as much as 14%, uh, which is one of the lowest intraday um, performances we've seen in some time. It's a $1.33 stock. Right? Can I just put that out there? <laughs> and it's, so, I mean, and this has been a saga, to, to yes, say the least. Absolutely. And and it feels like when we talk about the retail apocalypse, if there is such a thing, one of the reasons it keeps persisting, the idea that keeps persisting, is candidly be, because of JCPenney, that... You know, it was a, a bet that was made by investors that just has not turned out, especially at a time where other retailers, candidly, are starting to figure are it doing out. Well, exactly. Right. We're seeing, um, you know, like Macy's, they they impressed this quarter. We're expecting Nordstrom's out later today. Last quarter, Nordstrom impressed. Um, you know, this is an environment where consumer confidence is high. Household household um, uh, financial security is stronger. Wages are on the rise. So it's if you can't make it in this environment when kind of things are good. You know, it's so um, funny that you say that because there's a story I sent to myself that I just saw by Matt Townsend yes. on the Bloomberg and it says, you know, we're reaching peak Christmas and he's basically saying, like you said, consumer mm-hmm. confidence is sky high, median wages are on the rise, households are wealthier than a year ago mm-hmm. thanks to continued gains in the stock market and home values. So consumers have a bunch of money, discretionary income yes. to play with. And all the holiday forecasts we've been writing about, writing about and, and hearing about have this Christmas and this holiday season really being one, one of the strongest. A lot of money is expected to be in the works and up for grabs. So why can't Pennies get a piece of this? So Pennies, it's been, it's been a, a, as you mentioned, a saga. Um, they have really been struggling with figuring out the right mix of merchandise. They have um, high inventory. They're over-assorted. They didn't have a CEO for a while. Right. They just have a new CEO right. who's only been in her job for a month to date. She started on October 15th. Um, so there's a, some degree of influence she can have over the rest of this year, but really uh, investors and analysts are expecting to see, uh, waiting to see how she's going to um, strategize next year. All I can think about when Ron Johnson, who was the senior vice president of retail operations at Apple, when he was brought in, they were really excited, right? Mm-hmm. This is a company, right? Apple knows how to sell things and do it well, the environment, the product, you know, and started to change things, put those little like kind of pop-up shops mm-hmm. in JCPenney. And then the traditional customer of JCPenney got freaked out because they were like, we're are my coupons, which is what this retailer has been known for. And I do wonder if Ron Johnson was allowed to have stayed there. Uh, he left in 2013. Like, I do wonder he was trying to move this forward to a different type of retailer. Mm. I wonder if things would be different. 
I don't know. Well, and and you do wonder. So Jill Soltow is Mm -hmm. the new CEO. She came from Joanne's store, so clearly understands that sort of discount side. Right. Um, So does she exactly? So does she return it uh, there? Because you know, Emma, as you point out, it's not just the discounters who are doing well. It's not just the high end that's doing well. It's these retailers who've sort of figured out that mix. You know, figuring out uh, online as well. So we'll see how long investors give her a little bit too. Ones that have been created. Nordstrom has um, a men's only store. You can return, you can buy something online and then pick it up at any hour, even if the store is closed in person. So being a bit, you know, creative and how you keep up with the tides. Can I ask, and forgive me if you covered this and I I just flew over my mind here, but this stock has had quite a swing today. We've been down as much as 14%. We're now up almost 11%. Why have we rebounded? Exactly. Good question. Um, You know, there does seem to be a bit of optimism over a new CEO, finally Mm -hmm. some sort of direction for the company. Um, Maybe some people are thinking, well, I mean, how how much worse can it get? Um, But I think a bit of optimism over the path ahead, some direction now grabbing, uh, as one one person I spoke to today said, you know, at least we see the management trying to grab the bull by the horns and trying to steer it in the right direction. This was an $80 stock back just before the financial crisis. It was up as much as around 44 back in, I guess, 2012. And it's amazing. It's a dollar thirty-five a share. Right. And which is important to point out because when you talk about, you know, 10% swings, like an 11% swing, which it is now, means it's up 13 cents. So just to point that out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Hema Parmar, consumer retail reporter uh, for us, keeping an eye on everything, especially as we get into the holidays. Uh, if you want any help shopping, maybe someone to sing you some Christmas music while you're doing it. Carol Masser is available. She can give you all the greatest hits. Nat King Cole, anything else? Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald. I like some of the old classics. folks because those mega tech IPOs they are probably coming your way in 2019. Let's get into this with our Alex Barinka, deals reporter for US IPOs and Tech M&A at Bloomberg Business Week. Joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Her story by the way featured in the year ahead issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine uh, out on newsstands and you can also check it out on the Bloomberg and at bloomberg.com. We are all promotional of you today. I'm just <laughs> well, I always appreciate it. <laughs> so tell us about what's going on. We're talking about what Uber, Lyft, maybe Airbnb. That's right. And uh, it's a lot of these kind of really big companies. I would sl- throw Slack in the mix as well, yeah. the office chat software maker that everyone knows and loves here in the Valley. But I think that this is a really important moment for IPOs, and, and the numbers kind of do a good job of, of explaining it. The last time we had three companies that had a value of more than $10 billion go public in the same year in the U.S., was when Bill Clinton was president. It was back in 2000. Um, it was the year that the maker of the Palm Pilot went public. So Heard. Wait, wait. That freaks yes. me out because we know I what know. happened in 2000. <laughs> Just saying. It, it, it should. It should. And and I think you're getting at that uh, that tech bubble. Um, so so it was kind of in, in the last tech bubble when we had all of these large companies going. The... Um, the folks who would argue with the idea that this is indicative of another bubble say, well, back then uh, it was a lot of smaller companies listing too that didn't have revenue, that didn't have real businesses. 
because these days um, the reason why folks would point to the big boom is because we frankly haven't had a lot of these big companies going public. There haven't been as many of these large deals. There's usually about one a year with like Dropbox this year, Snap last year, um, because these companies have been able to find capital from private funding rounds. So the argument against Bubble is these are real companies now with real money, even though valuations might be a little bit high. Uh, they're not going to disappear uh, if there's a bit of a, a sell-off in broader valuations. And so what's the after effect of this, Abar? Like, I mean, is this a situation where that will free up and sort of unleash more venture capital? Is this going to be a new series of bellwether stocks? What are these companies going to tell us about where the market goes from here, especially the tech market goes from here in 2019. So I think that freeing up venture money is a big thing um, for these companies right now. If you're if you're a venture capital or a private equity firm that's a holder in these big companies, you haven't been able to get any liquidity from them. There have been some big secondary rounds, but you know that's not the norm. It's not like you can go out on any given day and, and sell your shares. So that's one thing that folks expect is a big reinvestment in the environment here. The other thing is, you know, it's been a while, basically since social media. It's been a while that we've had kind of a new industry within yeah. tech really get justified by public companies. So social media, you saw that with Google and then Facebook and then Twitter and now Snap. Uh, now you have the the kind of sharing economy companies. You have Uber, you have Lyft, you have Airbnb. So these are our companies that are kind of looking to justify this idea that the being a platform for some kind of consumer service or good is a real business model and is something that can exist as a public company. And and remember, going public is just the first step to being uh, the next FANG, uh, right. the next group of really, really large companies. So this will be folks seeing whether or not um, these companies can be as sustainable right, and right. continue to show growth. But Alex, there's also some um, cachet, right, with going public at some point, right, to be a publicly held company. There's, there's a status that goes along with that, from going from being a unicorn or are really excited about startup to actually becoming a publicly held company. There definitely is. And I think a really good example of this has actually been some of the smaller companies that have listed and and perhaps at the stage for these big guys to actually go out. Garden Health is this cancer detection startup. It's backed by SoftBank. So it's backed by this kind of $100 billion vision fund, this massive tech fund. So it has access to capital. But they went public earlier this year and the CEO, Halmi Altuki, told me, we believe that becoming a public company gives us the awareness that's necessary for this important story. That sentiment of of just getting your name out there and being among the ranks of the biggest names in tech is something that pe- that these executives really do care about. Aside from the access to capital, aside from you know the ability to recruit people who want to work for a public company, this being out there does kind of give that cachet that it's necessary um, to you know to be the next biggest company in the world. Well, and I loved what you said earlier, Alex, about, you know, kind of this new sort of sub-industry that's being created because, and you know the history, you and Carol know the history very well of Silicon Valley in terms of, you know, it comes with these waves and the the sort of after effect of the money coming in, not just to the venture capital firms, but into these executives, they become the angels who sort of give birth to the next. And you you think about the semiconductor industry, you think about the PC, you think about software, you think about internet. You know, we had... uh, 
We had an author on not too long ago talking about sort of the history of the internet really only going back 20 years. And you think about the Jerry Yangs and the Mark Andreessen's of the world, you know, the, the people who are running these companies, you know, the Chesky's and, and the others, I mean, that will put them in a position to, to do that. And you think about the Kevin systems and others, you know, who are making uh, their fortunes there as well. And, and, you know, I think of like the PayPal mafia, you remember Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Reed Hoffman, you know, these folks who have now gone on, Elon Musk with his Tesla and SpaceX, Reed Hoffman. Like, you know these names, and, um, you know, they did well, their service and at the startups influ- and, and then the had the money. And the they'll have, yeah. Right. Well, and right. speaking of influence, I think about Masayoshi-san and SoftBank and having such deep pockets, that $100 billion tech fund. And there was a great story in the magazine, I guess a few months back, that just talked about that because of his ability to plunk a lot of money into one investment, it's kind of turned the whole VC world upside down. And that folks are kind of having to collaborate more to make an investment that makes a difference and that they have more say in it. And I do think about these folks that do want to exit these investments, whether it's Uber or Lyft, so that, again, they have deep pockets to play uh, to play with and to go up against somebody like Masayoshi-san and SoftBank. All right. So, Alex, what trips this up? Uh, the the big thing is going to be market volatility. Um, that is the big thing that people are going to be watching. If there's a sell-off but things are stable, companies can still get out. They might not love the valuation discount that they're having to take, but if things are swinging all over the place, uh, if there's a lot of uncertainty, that is kind of the problem here. And and I also have to throw out there, remember, Qualtrics was a big deal that was supposed to list this week. They got bought by uh, SAP for $8 billion. So uh, these big, big guys, these $10 billion plus, you know, Uber's valued right. at 76 billion. I don't know if there's somebody out there that could buy them, but if you start going down the chain, you know, we've reported in the past that Slack had conversations right. with potential acquirers. I don't know if anything like that's going on right now. Um, right, right, but right. Volatility or acquisitions, that's what keeps And let's just remind out. everybody that the stocks that did IPO uh, this year, as you point out in your story, uh, a bunch of them are doing actually really well despite a volatile market. So it's interesting to see that. Alex Barinka. Love talking with you. Deals reporter for U.S. IPOs and Tech M&A at Bloomberg News. She's in our 960 studio, Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Check her out at Alex Barinka on Twitter. And, of course, she her story featured in the Year Ahead issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. That is out. And you can check it out at the, on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. So give some credit where it's due. Give props to you know who I give. Swag and made him cool. He used to be a fool. So credit. Credit. Uh, okay, I just had to get to that point. Come on, Karen. I know. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, Be better. <laughs> Be better. I love that expression of yours. Uh, well, the good times actually... There's a lot of folks out there saying be better to companies when it comes to uh, See, their credit and credit bring rating. it all together. It's synthesizing. Well done. Be better. Pecan, pecan. That's all I'm going to say. I got so, a little more sleepless. <laughs> so listen, the good time's coming to an end in the corporate debt market. And this week's turmoil in GE, it's a sign that things can get much worse. Sorry, everybody, as we look ahead to 2019. This is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today. Molly Smith wrote it. Bloomberg News corporate finance reporter in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Um, tell me what's going on. So there are some people who are, for the record, saying that credit is looking great right now. Corporate uh, credit? Yes. <laughs> um, Bank of America just put out a note on that recently that uh, that the environment for credit right now is looking like the best it has, that it has in years. You mean to invest in it, s- to buy into it, or what? Yeah, to invest in credit yeah. right now. But I would say that that's uh, one of the lone optimists that I've heard out there, and uh, I think my story would probably capture more of the pessimist view of the market right now that we're speaking to and that 
We've heard a lot of money managers been saying this lately that, uh, you know, Scott Minard was really the first one of Guggenheim this week to say it prolifically on Twitter that uh, GE could just be the start of a broader collapse in investment-grade debt. And we've heard a lot of people joining in on that theme as well. And I've written about it a lot. I think what makes GE unique, though, is that where GE is right now is really because of challenges unique to GE. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about the power business struggling and other transparency issues um, with other segments of the business. But when we talk about the broader collapse in IG, this really refers more to the broader leveraging of corporate America that much talked about buildup in triple B credits, a lot of this stemming from M&A. That's not really a GE issue, but that is an investment grade credit issue. So name some names here for us. And and I should say, because I have to get my very simplistic brain around this, you guys are always ahead of me way ahead of me. Um, Carol, while you were gone, I, I made a like just loving but slightly disparaging remark about Taylor and Molly oh, being nerds credit over nerds. Here? Did they, um, did he oh, he called did. us a nerd on the air. I, yeah. on the air. I was a really oh, yeah. smart individual. I know. But they're so much smarter than I. Because he cares. I do. Yeah. I, and I said that on the air too. But seriously, like what I read into this is this idea of like companies have borrowed a bunch of money. Right. Business has been good. If business doesn't remain good, they may have a hard time paying this off. And so suddenly investing in their debt doesn't feel so great. Well, remember when a lot of these companies were building up on debt, this is when interest rates have been zero yeah. for like the better people part thought of the last this, decade. People thought this was a good strategy. They were re, um, you know, doing their debt, refinancing their debt to lower rates. Money's cheap. Money's cheap. Putting some more money on their balance sheet so that they had it just in case. And we, at that point, were kind of applauding them. Yes, we were. And (laughs) you're looking at, and I think, you know, that we've seen, you know, these growing years of investment grade issuance, like record after record for whatever it's been the last five, six years. And a lot of that people say each and every year, you know, it's like a pulling forward for next year that we're always trying to get ahead of the Fed hiking rates now that we're in this tightening cycle and that people have been pulling forward issuance to refinance debt because historically we're still looking at pretty low interest rates, but we're not at the end of the hiking cycle So in yet. your story, and I <laughs> derailed myself by like, you know, not understanding as well as I should, but you know, you talk about Ford, you talk about Campbell Soup Company, you talk mm-hmm. about Keurig Dr. Pepper. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are companies that, that people know. So tell us one or two examples of why this is hitting them. So I'll speak to uh, one of them that fits that M&A trend that I was talking about and another that's maybe a little bit more, you know, unique to a specific company like GE was. So in the broader M&A trend, uh, that would pretty much be AB and Bev, I think, is the top of a lot of people's minds right now, uh, that they're one of the few non-financial corporate balance sheets out there with more than $100 billion of debt outstanding. Wow. And they've been (laughs) criticized as being slow to deleverage like they said that they would uh recently they have cut the dividend in half as uh, i've seen a report from some sell-side analysts who say they would need to even fully suspend the dividend to meet the deleveraging targets that the rating agencies have laid out uh, but they are certainly committed to uh the deleveraging as my discussions with them have been and that is their intent to continue on doing is that the, way is there a molly some formula that for either an economic downturn or for rates to increase that all of a sudden starts to tip um, the corporate debt market negatively. You mean like, is there a specific like number that we're looking out for here? Yeah. Like if if the economy slows down by 
a half a percent or if the interest rates go up, I don't know, half a percent? Like, is there something that tips the corporate debt market? And if, solve this problem for us in 20 seconds. Go yeah, on. I mean, if I, gosh, if I had the magic formula right now, I don't know if I'd be sitting in this chair. I might have a lot of other work to do. But, but obviously, if there's an economic <laughs> downturn, it's going to oh, make it definitely. much more difficult. No, it's like, I, I think, you know, like you said, the GDP figures and just how high rates are going to go. That's what we're looking at. Unbelievable. That's my 22nd answer. But you said we're on track for the worst (laughs) year for the uh, blue chip company debt market since 2008. Yeah, that's not great. Uh, Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter, one of the most read reporters on the Bloomberg, uh, joining Carol and myself. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. It's a good day when Randy Watts joins us. He's executive vice president, chief investment strategist at William O'Neill and Company in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And he says it is really messy outside. Yeah, I was going to say extra points for making his yes. way to the studio. Thank he could have just said, you know what? I'm going to chill in my office. You guys can call <laughs> me and I'll give you my wisdom from there. But it's nice to have you uh, here with us, Randy. Always a treat to come back. Thanks for having me on. So talk to us a little bit about this market environment, an interesting one. I can't believe that we're almost done with 2018. Jason and I have been uh, doing a lot of interviews for the magazine side of Business Week uh, about the year ahead and the things we're going to be you know, talking about, worried about. When you look at the market environment, where we've come from January and where we are, how does it look to you? Well, I would say right now investors are really struggling with three big factors or risks. The first is that for the first time in about two years, we exited earnings season with the four quarter forward earnings estimates for S&P 500 companies going down after earnings season. That's a big change, right? That's a big change. The the third quarter was a good quarter for earnings. They were about 27% on average, but the fourth quarter estimates and the 2019 estimates fell after companies reported results and gave guidance overall that wasn't maybe quite as robust as investors were looking for. And yet, corporations and their investors and candidly the Federal Reserve of the United States are still saying we feel pretty good about the economy just maybe not as like enthusiastically amazing as we as we felt before so how do you synthesize that as an investor well I think you know kind of going into this earnings season people were expecting about 10 percent earnings growth for 2019 that number looks like it's going to be more about eight percent right now and I think the market needs to kind of readjust and settle on what the the new number is for next year before it can get confident about the outlook and therefore hopefully move back up. But it's always perspective, right, Randy? So what if we look around the world and the U.S. is, again, you know, the best place to invest compared with others? Perspective. Would that be enough? Even as you say, you know, earnings looks like the outlook is not as rosy as it's been. That perspective, is that enough to provide some momentum, at least on the equity side of things? It would be enough if people or investors felt that estimates had already stabilized. Right now, they're unsure. In addition, if you look at the Federal Reserve's plans or dot plot for the next year, they're talking about four rate increases. And investors right now are nervous about whether the U.S. economy can withstand four rate increases over the next 12 months, especially 
as the macroeconomic picture has been slowing in both Europe, China, and emerging markets. So what if the Fed starts to back off? What if they do, you know, one and they say, you know what, you know, they start to slow down their expectations. What sure. happens then? What, what changes in terms of investor psyche? Sure. So we've been talking about that with our clients. We call this a, t- a term we call the dovish hike, where they raise rates, but then in the language indicate they're probably going to go on pause and become a little more data dependent going forward. We think if that was to happen, the bond market would rally very strong, and that would be a very, very positive and bullish sign for stocks. I think the question is, is that an occurrence that's going to happen after the December rate hike, after the March rate hike, or something farther out? I think once the market can get confident that it's seeing, it can see where the end of the rate cycle is, equities will start to perform much better. All right, Randy. So let's shift to politics a little bit uh, and the sort of political implications, fallout, or maybe opportunities uh, from the midterms. One of the things I love about your background is you're an American studies uh, major at UVA. So you appreciate history and American history uh, specifically in your latest research. You know, you break it down all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, I think, in terms of how the stock market performed going into the midterms and coming out. Is history a good guide here, you think, or are we sort of so upside down that we don't know whether that is a good indicator? So I would say I would say two things there. First, if you look at the fourth quarter of a midterm election year and the next two quarters after in the following year, that nine-month period historically is very bullish for stocks. It averages a 14% return looking all the way back to 1906. So normally, this is actually a good time for stocks, and the market rallies after the election. The unfortunate normally normally (laughs) the unfortunate point is number two, which is this year has not followed at all the normal seasonal patterns. Normally, in a midterm year, you have you have a very strong Q1, a weak Q2 and Q3, and a strong Q4. We've actually done the exact opposite of that, and I do wonder if two factors are playing on that. First, you had the major tax cut, yeah. so that's a little mm-hmm. bit of a curveball. And second, you, again, you have the Fed raising rates in the middle of this. But, you know, and I love that you do look at the data, you look at the charts, and you, you really dig deeply into technicals. What, though, among the fundamentals or stories that are out there, depending on maybe what this Congress, ne- this new Congress does, that could be good or bad for the financial markets? Uh, well, I would say right now the market is really sort of leader, leaderless in terms of the, the sectors uh, that does concern us. Obviously, tech has been the leader of this bull market. It's having an okay day today, but it hasn't acted well the last couple mm-hmm. of months. I don't think technology has to lead the market, but it can't be the worst group. It's just too much of the market capitalization. So that, you know, that obviously concerns us. Also, some of the major exporters, companies like Caterpillar, 3M, didn't give great guidance on their calls. We would love to see, obviously, a trade deal to help that. But also, we'd like to see the world economic estimates start to stabilize. If you look at the World Bank estimates, for example, they've been ticking down pretty steadily over the last year. Hmm. Trade wars concern you? How much? Uh, I don't think that's the main cause of weakness in the markets. I really think it's the earnings outlook and, and the Fed. I think it is a marginal factor. I do think that if you had been paying attention, you always assumed there probably wasn't going to be a China deal before the midterm elections. Right. And that the likelihood to really likelihood of really getting down to, to, to real horse trading was going to be uh, at the G20 meeting, which is the end of this month, November 30th. So we're very hopeful that something positive can come out of that. If it's not a deal, at least some further discussions and the, and, and the appearance that both parties really want to reach a deal. Are it people- does feel oh, sorry. like – sorry to interrupt. Like, okay. It does feel like 
there is a there are a lot of hopes pinned on that meeting. I mean, I, I yeah. feel like it comes up in every single deal. conversation. It came up. It's the centerpiece of a big story in Bloomberg Business Week's The yeah. Year Ahead uh, issue right now. It is going to set the tone, it feels like, for what we do in terms of global trade in 19. If we made no progress out of that meeting, I think that would be a sharp disappointment for investors. Yeah, it certainly impact a lot of companies and players that are out there. Um, we really do love when you come in, and I know you, you brave the really nasty snow that's out there in the weather. So thank you, thank you. Really appreciate it. You guys are the best. Always good to have a conversation with Randy Watts. He's Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company. Really thoughtful and smart. Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.